Who were the Gaonim? So the Gaonim or the Gaonic period is one of the most important periods in Jewish history. We covered it briefly and touched on it in many different classes. A couple weeks ago, we did an overview of Jewish history. And so then we covered, we went through various periods of Jewish history and we covered the Gaonic period as well. The dates of this period are usually put from 589 to 1038. I guess what's usually called the Dark Ages uh, in, our, um, in our current, in our kind of secular history. So there are, of course, different ways that historians define it. Of course, no period in history begins on a certain day and ends on a certain day. Um, the periods kind of evolve gradually and change gradually, and it's only after you, you're in a period for some time you can really identify yourself as in a particular period or identify a particular period. So it doesn't happen overnight, but historians like to point to specific events that they say, well, this kind of brought about this new period. So 589 is a specific event, and 1038 is a specific event. So the Gaonic period is a time when Jewish life was centered in Babylon. Babylon is modern-day Iraq along the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Um, it was the center of Jewish life. Now, Jewish life began in Babylon already much, much earlier with the destruction of the first temple. The first temple was destroyed, at least according to our traditions, around 421 BCE. So long before the Gaonic period, right? Almost a thousand years before the Gaonic period. And there was a very, very large Jewish community in Babylon throughout this entire period. In fact, there were large parts of Babylon that were majority Jewish by this time. And for previous periods as well um, in Jewish history, the, pre the period right before the Gaonic period, known as the Amoraic or Sevoraic periods, um, there was also um, a Jewish center in Babylon. Um, but also another thing that happened dur during the Gaonic time is it is also the beginning of um, Judaism was beginning to really spread out. Now, Judaism has been spread out from the earliest times as well. From the destruction of the first temple, Judaism was pretty spread out. But it becomes more spread out during the Gaonic period. Early on in the Gaonic period, if we date the Gaonic period to beginning in 585, so just a couple decades later, the Arabs, who were now had become Muslim, led by Muhammad and his successors, came out of Arabia, and they conquer Israel, Syria, Egypt, then Babylon, then Persia, then all of North Africa, all the way to Spain, bringing Arab rule and culture across the entire Middle East, North Africa, and Iberian Peninsula. So this is all during this Gaonic period. Now the name Gaonic period is named after the Gaonim. The Gaonim were leaders of the two great yeshivot, the two great schools in Babylon. Babylon, as the center of Judaism, had two great schools. One was in the town of Sura, and the other one was in the town of Pompadita. Pompadita is modern-day Fallujah. So these yeshivot stood at the center of Jewish life in Babylon, and the Geonim, who stood at the heads of these yeshivot, these schools, stood as the spiritual leaders of Judaism. So
So this was a time that Judaism was somewhat centralized, um, very centralized, um, led by two leaders, one in each. There were two great yeshivot, so essentially two leaders who essentially were the two leaders of Judaism. During this period, there was also um, Babylon was an autonomous Jewish community. In other words, the Persians and later the Muslims gave Jews full autonomy, could deal with their own affairs. And the Jewish community in Babylon itself was led by the Reish Geluta, the Exilarch, it's called, or King of the Exile. The Exilarch was a position that had been created already in the early days when Jews came to Babylon. The Reish Geluta, princes of the Jews, were descendants of the final kings of the house of David, who... Um, were taken first imprisoned to Babylon, and then released, and then made leaders of the Jews, and um, they were their descendants. And this institution continued for well over a thousand years. There was this prince of the Jews, um, and who essentially ran Jewish affairs in Babylon, and uh, really in the Persian and later um, uh, Arab empires. And so um, the Reish Geluta was more the civil leaders of Jewish life. And really, the Reish Geluta is worthy of a class of its own. Exilarch is the English way to say it. Um, but the Geonim were the spiritual leaders of this period. So a little background. In the lead-up to the Geonic period. So we really go back to the destruction of the temple in the year 70. Following the destruction of the temple, many Jews were killed in the war that led to the destruction. Following that, there was Roman persecution in the land of Israel. Sixty years later, there was a second war led by a um, Jew called Shimon ben Bar Kuziba, um, and uh, sometimes referred to as Bar Kochba. And um, again, horrific war, many Jews were killed. Roman persecution continued and increased. By the early 200s, the center of Jewish life moved from Israel, the land of Israel, to which was in the Roman Empire, to Babylon, which isn't that far geographically. It's in Iraq, um, but it was in the Persian Empire. Different empire. Romans and Persians fought each other for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, throughout their entire histories, they fought each other. Um, and yet, the, um, the, so the Jewish community moved from Israel, the center of Judaism moved from Israel as many, many Jews left Israel and fled to Babylon and Babylon became the center of Israel. And the early 200s, this begins what we call the Amoraic period. It begins with um, Shmuel, who was a great um, leader in Israel, one of the great leaders of Israel, originally from Babylon, moves back to the city of Naharda'a. Naharda'a at the time, was the Jewish capital in Babylon. It had been the Jewish capital in Babylon since the destruction of the temple. This is, again, this is the early 200s. Destruction of the temple at this point was about 600 years earlier. It had been the Jewish capital in Babylon, Naharda'a. Um, and um, the, so the yeshiva Naharda'a becomes very, very prominent. And then right afterwards, another great scholar who... Uh, by the name of Abba Arichta, or who later became known as Rav, just Rav, the rabbi, um, opened the second school in southern Iraq, southern Babylon, in a place called Sura. So for the next 300 years, now the Jewish, the yeshiva at Naharda was, Naharda was destroyed in a war in the mid-200s, 
and not long after the yeshiva rose, rose to prominence, and the center of Jewish life moved to the nearby town of Pompedita. Pompedita, again, is modern-day um, Fallujah in Iraq. Um, the Pompedita, and before that Naharda, which is right next to it, um, were the centers of Jewish life for a thousand years. And for a very long period, it was, there was an all-Jewish city, a large all-Jewish city, and it was the center of Jewish life. Fortunately, no Jews left there anymore. Um, so it was during this period, these 300 years of these two great yeshivas at Surah and Pumpedita, that Babylon was the center of the Jewish world. Um, during these times, these schools developed this unique analytical method of studying the oral law that had been recorded in the Mishnah. And these teachings were compiled in the 400s over decades in a work that became known as the Babylonian Talmud, or the Talmud, um, or the Gemara sometimes. The Talmud was concluded around the year 500. 499 is when Ravina um, dies, the final leader in compiling the Talmud. It, was, it took, again, it was over decades, so it took multiple generations. Um, but when the final leader dies in 499, so around the year 500, the Talmud is completed. The following decades, the scholars of these great yeshivot, known as Rabbanan Svorai, continued to edit the Talmud. They continued going through editions, and um, there were editions uh, added, and it was edited multiple times um, uh, throughout uh, the next couple decades. However, by the mid-500s, um, there was the, the Persians, whom the Jews had lived fairly decently under. There were some difficult times, um, under Persian rule over the years, but generally not very long, generally minor. Um, but in the mid-500s, life under the Persian emperors got very, very bad. The Persian emperors were under... Um, life, for whatever reason, became extremely difficult. There was a lot of chaos in the, in the empire, and uh, Jews, Jews really suffered. Um, there was a time in the mid-500s where the entire family of the Reish Gelutah was wiped out, um, and uh, leaving only um, only one one child that survived. Uh, it was also during this time that both yeshivot in Surah and Pompadita were forced to close. Now scholars continued to study. There were smaller yeshivot, but the primary main academies that had served as centers for Jewish life for over 300 years were forced to close during this time. In 589, life had gotten a little bit better for Jews in Babylon. And so the yeshiva of Pompadita was reopened. A few years later, the yeshiva at Sura reopened. So 589 really marks the beginning of the reopening of the schools following the end of one period and the beginning of a new period. And it's this event that's usually associated with the beginning of the Gaonic period. So while the date of the Gaonic period began, many historians like to put it at 589, what really marks the Gaonic period and what really makes this period unique and stand alone is what happens 45 years later in 634. That was the year that the Arabs in the early 600s, um, the um, uh, Muhammad appears in Arabia and manages to um, get a big following uh, as, a, um, as a prophet and creates this new religion called Islam. 
and he, um, quick, uh, they quickly capture um, what today would be northern Saudi Arabia or central Saudi Arabia, um, where Mecca and Medina are. First Medina, then later they capture Mecca. And then um, they start pushing north. They start pushing north, and uh, by the end of Muhammad's life, they're already attacking what today we know is the land of Israel. And um, right not long after his death, they capture Jerusalem. From there, they move northward. Israel, by the time was, by the way, at the time was under Byzantine rule. Um, it had actually been fought over the, between the Persians and the Byzantines for decades at that point, but it was under Byzantine rule. And um, they defeat the Byzantines, um, pushing them all the way back um, out of Syria, all the way up to um, even out of eastern, what today would be eastern Turkey. And then they move south, they capture Egypt, which was also Byzantine at the time. And then they move east and they capture Babylon in 634, eventually capturing the entire Persian Empire, extending their, their, their empire eastward as far as India and Afghanistan and westward, stretching within a generation all the way to Morocco and Spain. So they, cap they conquer this huge, huge area. It becomes known as the Caliphate. Um, in the center of the Caliphate is initially for the first hundred or so years in Damascus, and then after 100 years or so in the mid-700s, the center is moved to a new city um, on the Euphrates River called, uh, called Baghdad that they create. And it becomes essentially a major, major metropolitan and the center of this massive, massive empire. So... That's an excellent question. Were Ashkenazi Jews in Europe at this time? There were Jews in Europe at this time. In Europe at the time, this is the 600s, right? Europe at this time includes Byzantine, which was, which until the Arab conquest was Israel, Syria, Egypt, um, parts of North Africa, as well as what today we'd call Asia Minor, um, and um, the Balkans, uh, Greece was all part of Byzantine. And then there was the Western Roman Empire, which didn't really exist, existed in name only, but was just lots of different, it was just chaotic. Jews lived in all these places, in Italy, in southern France, in Spain, before the Arab conquest, um, as well as in Greece, and, uh, but, and, and in Israel, and in Egypt, and all these places. Um, most Jews, though, in the early days of the Caliphate, when the Caliphate stretched this huge, huge area, the vast majority of Jews probably more than 90% lived in the caliphate. The Jew, number of Jews in Byzantine itself, meaning what today would be Turkey, Greece, or um, the Balkans, or in the Western Roman Empire, was fairly small. It was decent, and then over time it's going to grow, it's going to change. We'll talk about how things change. So... So the Muslim, so Jews were generally left in peace. Um, they were allowed to live in the, with their own autonomy. They were second-class citizens. They had to pay the most important thing the Muslims insisted on everywhere was that they, play, they paid a um, jizya tax, uh, which was a tax that all Jews had to pay per, per head, um, and Christians, um, anywhere in, in the Muslim empire. But otherwise, they were mostly left alone. The Muslims even respected the position of the Reish Geluta, um, and the um, and the Gaonim, 
Um, at the time, in Byzantine areas that they captured, Syria, Israel, Egypt, Jews had suffered an enormous amount of persecution, as well as some very um, some major. Um, there were some major pogroms where Jews, Jewish communities were, had been wiped out in those areas, and so Jews were very glad that the Muslims came. Um, it was a relief for them. Um, after the Christians that treated them so badly. And even in Babylon at the time, the Jews had been suffering, hadn't had a great time. And the Muslims also was a big relief for them and were very open to them. And they, they accepted them and allowed them to practice as they will. Um, so, and they allowed the position of the Reish Gilotah, the Gaonim, to thrive really for 350 years. So the Gaonim and the Yeshivot were therefore in close communication with the entire caliphate. They were all, remember, they're all in one empire, at least for most much of this period. It's all a single empire, Jews in Iran, Jews in Afghanistan, or, um, or in Bukhara in Central Asia, or in Yemen, or in Egypt, or Syria, or um, Tunisia, or Morocco, all Jews in all, or Spain, or Jews in all these places were all part of the same caliphate. They were all in the same empire, and so they're in touch with the center of Jewish life in this empire, which is, um, which is um, in Babylon at the time. And most Jews during this time, majority of Jews lived probably in Babylon at this time. Um, now, Living in this new Arab caliphate led to many major changes in the Jewish community, which also kind of marks this period. For one, Jews stopped speaking Aramaic, the language of the Talmud, the language of the Tirgumim, of the various translations. Jews had spoken Aramaic at this point for over a thousand years from the destruction of the first temple and the first exile to Babylon. It had been the policy of the Babylonian Empire to require everybody to speak the language of the Babylonian Empire, Aramaic. You were not allowed to speak other languages. And so Jews began speaking Aramaic when they were exiled in Babylon. And throughout, for the next thousand years, Jews everywhere spoke Aramaic. That was the spoken Jewish language. Now, with the Arab conquest, Aramaic fell out of favor. Nobody spoke Aramaic anymore. Everyone began speaking Arabic. That's the language you needed to speak to get around. And this was you know, whether you were living in Iraq and Babylon, whether you're living in Yemen, whether you're in Egypt, Syria, or in Morocco or in Spain, wherever you were, the Jews spoke Arabic. That was a spoken language. Jews also moved away from an agrarian society. Until then, Jews in the land of Israel, of course, had been mostly farmers. And they lived in an agrarian society. Jews in Babylon, when they came to Babylon, what did they know? They knew farming. So over time, they bought plots of land, and soon, with time, most of the land in Babylon belonged to Jews, to Jewish farmers. And throughout the um, Second Temple period, and definitely during the um, Amoraic period, of the, the period of the Talmud, um, the, most of the land in Babylon belonged to Jews, and um, Jews were farmers. That's what they, they lived in villages in farms, and they, uh, they farmed. And there were, of course, some big cities as well, but Jews were mostly living in the countryside. With the rise of the Arab Caliphate, two things happened. Firstly, Muslims put, they didn't ban outright Jewish land ownership, but they made it hard to, for Jews to own land, for Jews to transfer land, for Jews to transfer land and inheritance. And so gradually, Muslims were favored and grabbed up the land, and Jews lost land. And at the same time, they were also with this very, very large empire that you know, stretches from India to Morocco, 
there, was, there were lots and lots of business opportunities, lots of trade opportunities, something the Jews had always been good at. And so many Jews moved to trade or to crafts. So big need for crafts. As many big, big cities. The Arabs, the Arab caliphates built these massive, massive cities. Baghdad at its height was a city of a million people. They built other major cities. Well, they developed Alexandria um, and Kirwan in Tunisia and um, Fez in Morocco and, um, and Cordoba in Spain. They were the, these were massive, massive metropolitan cities. So they need a lot of tradesmen. They need a lot of, a lot of craftsmen. So, many, so Jews moved to the cities. And so by the mid-700s, there was oh, about 100 years after the Arab conquest, there were no Jews left on the farm, very few Jews left in the villages. Almost all Jews had moved from being a rural society to becoming an urban society. That changed Jewish culture dramatically. It changes Jewish law. A lot of laws that kind of expect everyone to own land and live on their farms. Now people don't live on farms anymore, right? People live in urban societies. It, it changed. And uh, for, uh, once after that, they, we never went back to being rural, despite many, many attempts over the years in different places to get Jews to go back to farming. Um, it never seemed to succeed. Jews were on the farms for a generation, two, three generations, and then they somehow managed to make it back to the cities. Um, they escaped to the cities. But... Um, so anyway, so there were these uh, ur- the Jews became very urban. They were speaking Arabic, and they also began to spread out much more. While at the beginning of the Arab period, the uh, majority of Jews probably lived in Babylon. Um, by the end of the Arab period, they were no longer a majority because Jews had moved. Jews had moved to many to for, to find opportunities elsewhere. There were many opportunities. There's also a period of great culture. The caliphate, the caliphs, were very highly cultured. They had come from being semi-nomads in Arabia to becoming very quickly highly cultured people. They developed, um, they brought back um, the uh, earlier Greek mathematics, science, medicine, philosophy, all earlier Greek works were translated into Arabic. Big universities were built um, across the Arab world. And in keeping with the times, many Jews became scientists, mathematicians, astronomers, doctors, philosophers. Um, the Jews, of course, took advantage of the new wisdoms that were available. This required Jewish scholarship for the first time to really develop a structured philosophy of Judaism. Now you had Jewish philosophers. Islam at the time was going through such a phase where Islam was producing philosophers who were developing a philosophy of Islam. And so Jews were required to do the same thing, to require something that the Gaonim are going to do, um, are going to build a philosophy, develop an organized philosophy for the first time of Judaism. It had been there, but never in an organized fashion. It's also a time of lots of Muslim and Christian schisms and cults. So while in Europe at the time, there was no room for Anything other than in Western Europe, there was nothing other than the Catholic Church. And in Eastern Europe, there was nothing other than the Orthodox Church. Um, In the Muslim Caliphate, there were lots and lots and lots of different opportunities. The Muslims essentially let everyone believe whatever they wanted, didn't force beliefs generally on people during this period. And so um, Islam itself split pretty early on between Sunni and Shia, and then each one split, and then many... um, 
individuals open their own various branches of Islam, and within a century or two of the beginning of, Us- of Islam, there were dozens of different versions of Islam, and Christianity, which had existed in Islamic lands for a long time by this point, um, also had many, many different cults, groups, and the like. And so that kind of freedom of you know, figuring out what you want to believe um, impacted Judaism as well. And there were some kind of groups and cults that broke away from Judaism to create their own versions. And um, it was a problem for the primary Jewish community. They had to deal with this. Um, and there was particularly one group known as the Karaites or Kraim that became very, very prominent um, and became, very, became a fairly large group. And uh, they rejected the earlier sages. They rejected the Talmud. They observed many of the commandments of the Torah differently than the way traditional Jews did. Um, and so the Gaonim worked very hard to counter this movement, to counter the Karaites, especially in the later Gaonic period, as the Karite movement grew, and they saw it as somewhat of a threat to traditional Judaism. The Karaites survived in very, very small numbers. They survived, and there's still a handful of them still today. Sorry? How do you pronounce the name of that group? Karaites Kraim in Hebrew. Where are they located? Mostly in Israel. They're small. There's maybe a few. Not a lot. Uh, there's a few in the United States. How do you spell that name? Kraim. Karaites. K-A-R-A-T-I-E-S. Oh, sorry, K-A-R-I-T, yes, I guess. So the center of Jewish life were the two great yeshivot that had been the center of Jewish life in the earlier Amoraic period. They were the two yeshivot of Sura in southern Iraq and Pumpedita in central Iraq. And these yeshivot, by the way, once Jews became urban... Especially, Jews moved to Baghdad in very large numbers. By the end of the Gaonic period, by the early one, by the year 1000, uh, there were probably a couple hundred thousand Jews living in just in uh, Baghdad itself. So, in other words, perhaps majority or a very, very significant number of all Babylonian Jews lived in the city of Baghdad. Remember, Baghdad itself was a city of over a million people. And Jews made up a very, very big part of that city. Um, so by the mid-800s, the, um, the yeshivot that had been in Surah and Pumpedita, both of them moved to Baghdad, where the primary Jewish community was. They retained their names, Surah and Pumpedita, but they, um, but, and, they, and their connections with the areas where they had been, but they actually were both in Baghdad um, during the second half of the Gaonic period. And these yeshivot were more than just schools. They were centers of scholarship and centers of scholarship consensus. So each school had dozens of high-level scholars employed by the schools. Now, many of these scholars, (coughs) these kind of high-level scholars employed by the school, the staff, the uh, faculty at the school, many of them actually had their own yeshivas, and schools in various towns and cities across across um, Babylon. 
Each school also had hundreds of young students. The students came from all over Babylon, as well as throughout the Jewish world. They would come from Persia, from Syria, Egypt, Tunisia, Morocco, Spain, and they even came from the Christian world, from Byzantine, from Greece, from Italy, southern France. Jews were coming wherever, if there was a young budding scholar, um, they would send them to Babylon to study one of the great yeshiva. And the way they worked is they worked around the system known as kala. Kala means gathering. Twice a year, two months of the Hebrew months of Adar, which is right before Passover, and Elul, which is right before Rosh Hashanah, the schools would be in session in what was called Kala. During the Kala session, during these two months a year, all the faculty and all the students would gather at this school. Whether if they were associated with the Sura school, they would gather at Sura. If they were associated with the Pumpadisa school, they would gather at Pumpadita. At the end of each Kala, and each it was a month-long, four-week session, at the end of the Kala, they would announce, w- announce which Mesechta, which subject, they would study at the following Kala. And so, for five months, the scholars would go to their individual schools, or many of them would stay in that particular, in their partic- in their in the main school, and they would study the subject with their students themselves. They would study the subject. At the Kalat, this gathering was essentially an opportunity to review and debate the subject together. So they would go over it, and they would debate it, and this allowed them to clarify questions, resolve issues of contention. Each yeshiva had 70 leading scholars, plus the Gaon, the leader of the yeshiva, And whenever there was an issue of contention, these 71 scholars together would vote on a ruling. Similar to the way the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council in Judaism, would do when we had a Supreme Council. Now, the Supreme Council was disbanded in the early 300s. Now, this was not the Supreme Council, but it was a copy of the Supreme Council with 71 members um, to vote on, the, on each issue um, as an issue arose, and that way they could resolve any issues of contention. The Kala would also take an opportunity to debate on the questions posed to them by scholars and communities across the world. So communities, if they had questions, just questions of understanding or questions of the law, they would send a letter to the, one of the two great yeshivot, and they would um, the yeshiva would then send back the answer. If it was an issue of contention or something that wasn't clear, they would wait for the kala and debate on it um, at, the, um, at the kala at this gathering. So it was really a way to find consensus, scholarship, um, clarity, uh, bringing essentially in two different institutions, bringing all of Jewish scholarship, all the scholars and all the main students together twice a year. So while the yeshivot functioned year-round, they swelled during the Kala. They had these, um, then everybody came together. There was at least 100 leading scholars um, in each yeshiva at each Kala, um, and probably many more, um, more often. And there were um, hundreds, if not more, students at each one. So it was a very, very large kind of gathering. And that was the, kind of, that was the, the yeshiva. So then the two yeshivot would work in tandem. 
Sometimes there were debates between the yeshivot, between the two schools, but often they worked in tandem, they worked together, and um, they would share their, um, their conclusions with each other and try to reach consensus often. The ga'onim and the yeshivot would also make new takanot, or rules, to be binding on all Jews. And they would, they would make various rules, um, and they were known as Takanot HaGaonim, the rules of the Gaonim. And since they were the leaders of Judaism, if they made a rule, then every Jewish community had no choice but to accept it. Um, they made, and they would usually make Takanot, would be in consultation with the two yeshivot, and in consultation with the Reish Galuta, with the exile arc, would have to also sign off on these new rules as the civil leader of Jews in, the, in Babylon and in the Caliphate. Um, they made many rules. One example of uh, such a rule that they made, one prominent example, is um, that before that, uh, the original rule in Judaism was that if someone had a debt um, that needed to be collected and um, the debtor was deceased, they were not able to. Co- they would could only collect land from the debtor's real estate. They couldn't collect from the debtor's from the debtor's cash. And the reason for that is, since the debtors not here themselves to defend themselves, so um, maybe more proof will come, will show up later, if the creditor collected cash, then the creditor will, uh, then this is how are you going to get the cash back? It's going to be hard to get it back. If they collected land, then it's easy to reclaim. And so, and the classic example would be this, uh, uh, the Ketubah, requires that when a um, Jewish man dies, um, a certain part of their estate um, is collected by their wife, and so uh, that collection had to also be done in land. Um, and, um, but that worked very well when almost all Jews owned land because they were all farmers um, in small farms. Once Jews were urban, most Jews did not own land. That whole thing fell apart. And so they changed the rule, no longer requiring debts to be collected by land. That's one of the many takanot ha-ga'onim, but there were many, many others that they made rules that the ga'onim made. Yes? What sort of money did they use in those days? I don't know what the currency was, but there would have been a currency that the, of the caliphate, right? They were in an empire. Sorry? It wasn't Yeah. At the center of Jewish life, these, the, uh, the, the, these yeshivot influenced Jews everywhere in the world. Virtually all rabbis anywhere in the world had studied in the yeshivot in Babylon. When a community needed a rabbi, they would send to the yeshivot, asking them, send the rabbi for us, send someone for us. The best and brightest from any Jewish community would make the long trek to Babylon to study in the yeshivot. If you lived somewhere along the Mediterranean, which was the civilized world at the time, it would mean a boat ride to Alexandria or Antioch, um, the two main eastern ports on the Mediterranean, and then an overland trek from Alexandria or Antioch all the way to Babylon. It was quite a trek to get to. It was quite a trip, right? You'd go by horseback or whatever it is, or by uh, in a wagon. But it wouldn't be an easy trip, but they would all go to Babylon to study. Um, and spend multiple years there studying, um, and often then be sent back to their community to be a rabbi there. Whenever rabbis anywhere in the world had questions, they would send the letters to the yeshivot, and the yeshivot would respond to their questions. Um, and this created a huge library known as Chuvot HaGeonim, or Responsa of the Geonim, from the Geonic period. 
And there were thousands of tshuvot that were written by the Gaonim, or by the leaders of the yeshivot, to various rabbis around the world. And so we have survived. Um, thousands of such tshuvot have survived um, and have been um, since in manuscript form and have since been published. Uh, but only a very small fraction of these tshuvot, we, we have only a very small fraction of what was actually written, right? This is a period of hundreds of years. We can imagine there was a huge amount written. We have a very, very small amount that actually survived. Now, the communities around the world would support these yeshivot, right? They were very expensive to run, right? You had a hundred or more faculty, hundreds of students, right? All of them needed to be supported, they all needed money, and so it was very expensive. So they would send, um, they would be supported by the local Jewish community in Babylon, and they would have fundraisers that would go throughout Babylon to collect, as well as they would send people, um, shluchim, or um, messengers, around the Jewish world to collect funds for the yeshivot. In each town, there would have been, in each city, there would have been um, people who were in charge of the collecting, who would collect from the locals, and then when the fundraisers would come to town, maybe they would collect a little more themselves, but they would get they would get in contact with the person in charge, and they would that way pick up the money. It was also an opportunity, these people who would visit on behalf of the yeshivot to collect money would also, um, uh, would also check what's going on in each community, correct things that needed correction, um, and uh, they would bring reports back about various communities to the yeshivot, um, and they would also bring the various questions, shelotut the questions and answers um, that the various communities had back and forth to the yeshivot. So um, that way, the yeshivot, through these students and through these messengers that they sent regularly, the yeshivot stayed in pretty close contact with every major Jewish community in the world at the time. So in this way, the Gaonim really stood at the center of Jewish life for Jews everywhere. So there were many, many Gaonim. Again, it's a period of 350 years with two great yeshivot. So you're talking about close to 100 Gaonim that we know of um, that led the yeshivot. And we mostly only know the names of the Gaonim themselves, because they were the ones that signed on the letters. They were the ones that are listed in um, historical accounts. Um, we don't know too many names of the many, many other scholars during that time. We know very few of their names. Um, so some of the most famous Gaonim was Rav Yehudai Gaon, who was the leader of Surah um, in the mid-700s. He wrote the first known book of the Gaonic period called Halachot Sukkot, um, which was an important halachic work, bringing halachot from the Talmud, the laws from the Talmud. The Talmud is a discussion that he brings out the final laws from the Talmud. Another renowned Gaon was Rav Amram Gaon. Rav Amram Gaon was a leader in Surah in the 9th century, the mid-800s. Um, he's most famous because he authored the first standardized Sidur, the first standardized prayer book, which was actually authored in response to a question from a community that said, we're a bit confused about how we're supposed to be praying. Can you please tell us exactly what we're supposed to say? And so he wrote out the prayer book for them. Um, and that is the first known written prayer book that we have. 
Before that, people knew what to pray, but it was all passed on orally, right? You kind of learned it as a kid, and then you just knew what to do. Uh, but <laughs> various discrepancies arose over time. So this was the first standardized prayer book. was written by Rav Amram Gaon. Um, perhaps the most famous of the Gaonim was Rav Sadia Gaon. Rav Sadia Gaon was actually not from Babylon. Almost all the Gaonim were from Babylon. Um, Rav Sadia was from Egypt. Um, he was a Gaon in the early 900s of, again, Surah. Um, Surah was generally the more prominent of the two schools. And um, he was, he wrote extensively. He also wrote a Siddur, a standardized Siddur. He wrote a commentary on the Torah where um, he worked to try to translate a lot of difficult words in the Torah, a lot of names of um, animals, plants that we don't know. We know only thanks to Rav Sajid Gaon's Arabic, tra- he wrote it in Arabic, but thanks to his Arabic translations. He also wrote the first book of Jewish philosophy. We mentioned that it was a time of philosophy and there was a need to organize Jewish philosophy. The first one to do that was Rav Sajid Gaon in a book called Emunot Vedeot, which is still a very important book of Jewish philosophy today. Another major Gaon was Rav Shrira Gaon. Rav Shrira Gaon lived in the late 900s. He was one of the last Gaonim. He was the leader of the school of Pompadita. And he was, we have an enormous number of chuvot from him that survived, presumably because by the time that he was Gaon, by the time he was leader, first he was later, the later they were written, the more chances they have of surviving. And also, by the time he was Gaon in the late 900s, the Jewish community had become extremely spread out. Babylon was no longer the largest, the, the Babylon <coughs> no longer had majority of Jews in the world, it was still the largest but it was no it wasn't by far there were other large communities now many many Jews in other places many Jews had moved from Babylon to other places it was a difficult time um, by the 900s the caliphate had fallen apart and had kind of turned into many different Arabic kingdoms and uh, things were not as good for Jews then depending on where they lived some places were better some places were worse and so including in Babylon itself things weren't all that great and so um, so anyway so we have a lot of letters from Rav Shirago but perhaps most notably was the Jewish community in Kirwan, which is, was a massive Arabic metropolitan city in what is today Tunisia, um, had asked him to explain, tell, give them a history of the oral tradition. And so he goes, gives them a history of the entire oral tradition. But notable to that history is he covers, he covers some 800 years of Jewish history in that very, very, very long letter that we have. That's essentially a book of its own. Um, but he also, this, in that history, he writes the history of all the Geonim, of both schools, of the yeshivot, until his day. And so Rav Shuragon's letter is the most important and reliable source of history for the Geonim. Um, we have other sources of lists of the Gaonim, of who were leaders when, um, but Rav Shura Gaon is considered the most reliable list of the Gaonim, um, if we want a list of Gaonim in each yeshiva throughout the Gaonic period. And he gives us the full list um, of who there was, and he also tells us many events that happened during um, the Gaonic period. Um, so it's really our best history of this period comes from Rav Shura Gaon. Rav Shura Gaon's son, Rav Hai Gaon was the last Gaon at Pompadita, the last leader at Pompadita. We have many letters from him. He also wrote a number of halachic works. 
And what he thought, his death in 1038 really marks the end of the Gaonic period. He died in 1038. Um, it doesn't appear they appointed another Gaon after him. Two years later, the Reish Geluta, the exile arc, um, his name was Chizkia, was killed. Um, and uh, many leaders of the Jewish community killed by the Caliph in Baghdad. And uh, that really led to the closing of the yeshivot and um, really um, it led to the diminishing of the Jewish community in Babylon. The Jewish community in Babylon remained fairly large. Um, and in the 1100s, uh, it, it's described there was still about 250,000 Jews living in Babylon. So it was a very, very sizable community for that time. Um, probably still the largest in the world. Um, but it had really gone fallen on hard times. Um, and it really was destroyed eventually within the mid 1200s, when the Mongols came, they destroyed and killed every person in Baghdad, um, of which a very big percentage were Jewish, and essentially totally destroyed what is today Iraq, leaving almost no people and nothing standing. Um, and that really brought the Jewish community of Babylon to an end, um, which, which later resurged. It came back um, following the um, Ottoman conquest in the early 1500s, um, about 300 years later. Less than 300 years later, um, the Jewish community was recreated, right? Along with the, the Arab community, and it became, a, it became a, another great Jewish Iraqi community. So the Gaonic period, though, although it officially ends in 1038, it really started dwindling before that. And part of what happened was, as the caliphate fell apart, um, slowly different you know, governors in the caliphate kind of declared independence, became their own leaders. Um, in the 900s, there was a group of Shia called Fatmids that um, were that uh, took control of um, North Africa, uh, of Tunisia and Egypt, and created um, their own caliphate. Um, at the time, Morocco and Spain became a more became independent. And so uh, you know, slowly, uh, kind of the um, caliphate disintegrated um, in the 900s. And so, um, so the, 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 it wasn't one political center anymore. And at the same time, as, life, as the caliphate disintegrated, life became much worse for Jews in Babylon. Um, Jews were persecuted more. And so many Jews moved westward or eastward to other places. And so mostly westward. And so... As a result, the, there were larger and larger Jewish communities in other places still supporting the center in Babylon. But there were also greater and greater scholars and more and more scholars in these communities who no longer really needed Babylon. The event that is often attributed to have ended the Gaonic period is told in Sefer HaKabbalah um, is the story of four captives. There was a four of the leading scholars of Babylon were sent um, as messengers to raise funds. And they, tra they were traveling on the Mediterranean and they were captured by pirates. And the pirates, seeing the value of, the, um, seeing the value of their um, catch, they decided they were going to make the most of it. So they brought the rabbis to four different cities around the Mediterranean. One rabbi was brought to, um, one rabbi was brought to um, Cairo, to Egypt, to Alexandria. One rabbi was brought to Kirwan, which was 
as we said, the major Arabic city in Tunisia. One was brought to Cordoba in Spain. Um, and one was bought, brought, we believe, to, um, to Italy. And so these four rabbis brought to different places and they were purchased by their local communities for exorbitant sums. And then, um, but then they felt indebted to the community that purchased their freedom and they remained there in their communities. And so each rabbi opened a yeshiva in their community. And essentially what happened was now there were great yeshivas, great schools in various cities, Rome, in Cordoba, in Kirwan, later Fez, Morocco had its own yeshiva um, in uh, Cairo, in Egypt. So there were major yeshivas elsewhere. There was no need for young scholars to go to Babylon. There was also no need for um, to get your rabbis from Babylon. There was also no need to send money to support the schools in Babylon. As a result, the schools in Babylon got smaller, had less students, less scholars, and most importantly, less money. And so it led to their dwindling, and it led to um, Jewish life becoming more, less centralized, and uh, led to really an end of a period where after the period of the Gonim, Jewish life has never been centralized in that kind of way. So the Gonim period is important. It happened, it ended a long time ago. It ended almost a thousand years ago. And yet it remains very important today. Uh, firstly, it was a time when Judaism was highly, highly centralized, even more than it had been centralized in earlier times, where the Gaonim and the leaders of these yeshivot really served as the leaders of world Jewry. It helped bring, um, it helped standardize Judaism and helped bring everyone to kind of be doing the same thing because there was a central schools where everyone was studying in. There were central rabbis. Um, so it really centralized Judaism. And perhaps most importantly, it led that the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, which had been written in Babylon, became the standard work of Jewish law um, and during this period. Um, the Gaonim also helped explain the Talmud. The Talmud is a very, very hard cryptic work, a very large, hard cryptic work. And it was the Gaonim and the Yeshivot that would study the Talmud and they would explain it. And most of our understanding and explanations of the Talmud were come from the traditions of the Gaonim, come from the way we understand it through the Gaonim, who helped us explain the Talmud, um, helped us um, evolve, uh, helped, uh, helped us understand the, t- the teachings of the Talmud. Um, the Gaonim also was this period where Jews moved from agrarian rural communities to urban communities. Um, the Gaonic leaders were the ones that kind of saw this change and made necessary changes in Jewish law as necessary to fit a more urban society away from an agrarian, or takanot rules, to help a more urban society away from an agrarian society. So um, the Gaonic period was very important in all these ways, um, but it led to a period of scholarship afterwards, known as the Rishonim period, um, where scholarship then thrived, really all across the Jewish world, across Europe and particularly in Europe and North Africa, which became the new centers. Um, Babylon really, as we said, didn't last too much longer after the Gaonim. Um, and um, the Jews in the East also never developed schools in the same way as Jews in the West. And uh, it really, very quickly, the Jews in the West eclipsed in size and in importance, um, eclipsed the size of the Jewish communities in the East. So that's the story of the Gaonim.